Go ahead and grab the study guide that's in your program. You can pull it up on your phones or your Bibles. Matthew chapter 27 is where we're going to be. If you're using one of the church Bibles, it's page 999. 999, Matthew chapter 27. As you guys are turning there, uh, tell you a story that I read. It's a news report that actually came out a while back about a pastor in Minnesota. Apparently part of his job was to travel to small rural communities in Minnesota uh, where they didn't have a church, they didn't have a pastor, and he would go there and perform funerals uh, services when that was needed. And so what he would do is him and his friend, the mortician, would drive in the hearse to this community, they would perform the service, and then they would drive back to their community, back to their home. Well, apparently one day after the service, he was really tired, the pastor, and they were driving back home, and so he leaned up against the window to, to rest, to take a little nap. And his friend, the mortician, says, you know, you should just, you should just get in the back and stretch out. Right? And the pastor's like, there's no way. That is so weird. And he goes like, come on. And he goes like, I guess so. So the pastor literally crawled into the back of the hearse, lied down, fell asleep. Right? About 20 minutes later, pastor sleeping, the mortician, the undertaker driving the hearse, pulls into a gas station to fill up. The service attendant comes out and right away he's just creeped out because he sees what he thinks is a corpse in the back of this hearse. Right? What really freaked him out, though, true story, is when the pastor sat up, knocked on the window, and waved at him. <laughs> mess, mess you up, right? Today we are celebrating uh, the resurrection of Jesus. It's not a pretend resurrection. It's a story I just told you. Uh, Christians around the world actually believe a literal physical resurrection of Jesus happened on Easter Sunday. Now, let me let's just get it out real quick. This is important. If, if the resurrection of Jesus did not happen... Okay. If it did not happen, I guess the result of that is we're, we're wasting about an hour and 15 minutes this morning. We could have just gone to brunch. But if it, if it did happen, then the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most important thing that has ever happened in the history of mankind. There's, there's no in between. There's no in the middle. It's either one or it's the other. Now, we're going to talk about the Easter story this morning. We're going to do it as we begin a brand new series you saw called Seismic. What we're going to be doing for four weeks is we're going to be looking at different earthquakes in the Bible. It's a very interesting little study, so I hope you'll come back. I don't know if you realize it or not, but in the Easter story, there are two earthquakes. Two earthquakes. And so what we're going to do is, is try and identify what is happening there, why is that happening, why is the earth shaking, and what does it mean to us, okay? Matthew chapter 27 is where we're going to be. We're going to read that to start in verse 45. You can also follow along in the screens if you would like. And here's what the... What the Disciple Matthew says, he says, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now let's drop down to verse 50. Later, when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he died and he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Then we read the earth shook. Now, this is our, uh, earthquake number one. The earth shook. It was such a powerful earthquake. It says the rocks split and the tombs were open, right? So we don't know what it was on the Richter scale, but it, was, it wasn't just a little rolling you know, thing that you know, we go about our business. No, this was a powerful earthquake. It says then it reads, the body of many holy people who had, ra- had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. I don't know if I've ever heard this talked about on Easter Sunday. We're going to talk about what is happening here, right? These zombies running around on Easter Sunday. (laughs) At dawn, now we're in Matthew 28, okay? At dawn on the first day of the week, so that's Sunday. 
Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look to the tomb. There was a violent earthquake. That's earthquake number two on Sunday. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone. Now, this part kind of catches my attention, makes me smile. And the angel sat on the stone. I don't know why he's doing this. I don't know if he's taking a selfie. I don't know if he's trying to show off. But that just kind of catches me as interesting. Rolls the stone away, sits on it. Drop down to verse five. The angel then said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen. Now, I know we're talking about the earthquakes, right? We're going to get to them. But in, in this story, Matthew 27 and Matthew 28, there's actually five columns, special or supernatural things that happen. Let's put them on the screen for you to understand the earthquake. You have to understand everything. Number one, you've got darkness for three hours, complete darkness. Second thing you have is the curtain in the temple. I don't know what that is, but that gets ripped in two. Then you've got earthquake number one. Then you've got these, these people that come back from the dead and they go into Jerusalem. And then you've got earthquake number two. What is happening here? Again, to understand the earthquakes, you have to understand everything that's happening. So in your study guide, I'm just going to go through every single one of these and give you uh, some understanding of the meaning behind it and why it matters to us, because there's a benefit in it for us. So let's start by talking about the darkness. We don't know if this darkness is the result of a sandstorm, because that happens in that part of the world. We don't know if it's an eclipse, or we don't know if it's just straight up a miracle. Honestly, it doesn't matter why it's dark. What we do know for sure is that God's behind it. The question is why? What is he doing? Why is there darkness for three hours as Jesus hangs on the cross, as his life ebbs away from him? Well, I I came across a story uh, about a guy who received a utility bill. Right away, he realized it was a computer accounting glitch. The bill that he got from his utility uh, company was for $100 million dollars. Okay. And so right away he knew something was off. Right. And so I I thought his response was clever though. He emailed the utility company and and he says, you know, I don't have this all. Could I pay in installments? Right. So I thought that was kind of cute. But why I mention it to you is this, you do know that your sin bill, you, you do know uh, that, that the debt you owe God for all your screw ups is the equivalent of that hundred million dollar utility bill. You don't have enough to pay it. And that's why God steps in. That's when Jesus steps in. That's the whole point of what's going on now. So now let's get to the darkness. You have to understand the theology behind what is happening on the cross, not just what's happening physically. I have just the condensed version of three verses for you on the screen. Second Corinthians chapter five, the apostle Paul says that Jesus was made sin for us on the cross. Now, here's a man, Jesus, who lives a perfect sinless life and for that period of time becomes sin. In first Peter chapter two, another disciple says that Jesus took our sins upon himself right then. And then probably the most significant statement by the apostle Paul in Galatians chapter three is that while Jesus is on the cross, he becomes a curse. He becomes a curse. What's going on here? Every time almost the, 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 this darkness is mentioned in the Bible, almost every single time, it's, it's, it's a reference of God's displeasure towards sin. That's what God's trying to communicate with darkness when it comes to the Bible. So why the darkness? Why? It's because it's at that very moment. It's during those three hours that Jesus is taking all your failings upon himself. It's at that moment he's taking all the consequence of your sin upon himself. He's paying the price and he's taking the judgment 
all upon himself. Why the darkness? Because God wants to make sure to communicate to us symbolically and visually and make sure we never forget there's always a consequence for sin. There's always judgment for sin. And at that moment, Jesus was taking your sin upon himself. See, way too many white people here not accustomed to talking back to the pastor while he's preaching. That deserved at least an amen, right? Oh, no, now it's too late. Bunch of crackers here. I'm preaching my heart out. Trying to. That was a big deal. Let's move on. Okay, that's fine. The tor- the curtain was torn. <laughs> the curtain is torn. Now, you have to understand about the temple three things. It's divided into three areas. You have the, the outer courtyard. That's where, that's where the, the, you know, the, the congregation can go. The, then you have the holy courtyard. That's where the pastors, priests can go, so to speak. And then you have the Holy of Holies. That is where only the high priest can go once a year, right? Now, between this courtyard, right, where the priests work and the Holy of Holies, there's a curtain. Now, I grew up hearing that it was a veil. Did you ever hear that? There was a veil. And I thought, a veil, that's, that's what a bride wears when she walks down the aisle, right? So it's just kind of like a thin piece of material, but you can see through it. Oh, no, no, no. Apparently, it's, it, it, we may have used that word, but I looked it up, right? That curtain, that sucker is 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and 10 inches thick. History books tell us that when they hung the curtain in the temple the first time, it took 300 priests to hang it. It was so heavy. Why? Because they don't want anybody wandering into the Holy of Holies. Why? Because that's the part, that's where the presence of God is most heavily felt. When the high priest would went in, go in, if he ever messed up, if he ever did said something he shouldn't do, if he didn't follow protocol, he would die. So at some point in time, they started tying a rope on the high priest's leg. So when he would go in, if he died, they could yank him out without having to go in. That's what's going on there. Now, I want to give you a verse in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, because it really kind of colors in what's happening, why this is significant. Hebrews 9, verse 6, we'll put it on the screen. It says, the priests entered regularly into the outer room. That's the middle section, right? The second compartment of the temple. They entered regularly into the outer room of the temple to carry on their ministry. They would do their job. But only the high priest, only the high priest, Entered the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could come directly into contact with God. And that only once a year. And when he would go in, he would never go in without blood. And I added the word sacrifice to help you understand what's going on here. So once a year, the high priest can go into the Holy of Holies, but he's got to bring a sacrifice. He's got to do that. Why? It tells us why. He would bring a sacrifice which he offered for his own sins. Now, this next phrase catches my attention and for the sins or trespasses. That's the old King James word for for sin. I put it in there. I'm going to explain to you why in a minute. He offered the sacrifice and the blood for his own sin and for the sins and trespasses of the people that they had committed in ignorance. Very interesting that that gets added. I was a sophomore in college at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It was late on a Friday afternoon, evening, uh, and uh, I'm driving back to my dorm room. There's a snowstorm outside, and all of a sudden, my Mazda GLC dies. 
I pull off to the corner side of the highway and I'm like, what? This is back in the day with no cell phone, right? You're like, how did you survive? I don't know. I survived. No cell phone. I have no one to call. No one is stopping. I look around. It's like almost midnight. I don't know what to do. Across the highway, I see this big complex. Looks like a warehouse. Looks like a business, right? And I'm like, there's some lights there. Maybe they can help. So I cross the highway. I get to the other side. I get to this. They have a huge fence. Huge fence, and it's got sign on it that says, do not enter, and no trespassing. And I'm like, but I need some help. I don't know what to do. Thank goodness, because of the fence, I thought I couldn't get in, but I walked along the side, and the snow drift in one section was such that I could climb up and climb over, and I got in. So I'm in this compound. I'm looking around. I see there's like a security booth over there. I can see there's three guards in there. So I'm like, I'm going to go over there, see if they can help me out. So I walk over there to the security booth. I walk in, and I say, hey. Does anybody have any jumper cables? Now, as soon as they said that, I knew I was in trouble when all of them reached for their gun. I was like, what the heck is going on here, right? And one of the guys asked me three questions. One guy, three questions. This was his first question. Are you an idiot? Which was very hurtful to me because I'm sensitive and I didn't like him coming at me that way. Are you an idiot is how he started. Question number two. Did you see the do not enter... No trespassing. That's why I have it on the screen. Did you see that sign? Yeah. And then he asked this question. Do you know where you're at? No. And he said this. You are at the Kent County Jail and Detention Center. You just broke into prison. It took me an hour, but I talked my way out of it because I'm good with words. And I didn't get in trouble. But I want you to understand something. You're not going to be able to do that with God. Here's what he does. He puts up a big fence. And he puts on signs that says, do not enter. No trespassing. Look at the, look at the screen. No trespassing. And, and over that fence, there's things I don't want you to do. There's places I don't want you to go. There's, there's words I don't want you to say. We're going to call those trespasses or sin. Now check this out. If you do that, if you climb over the fence on purpose, look at the screen, or in ignorance, there's still going to be a punishment. There's still going to be judgment. There's still going to be a consequence. Do you understand? Now, it gets kind of serious. That's why these next verses are so significant. Hebrews 9, verse 6 and 7, the whole thing changes. Look at what it says, right? The next verse, or sorry, verse 11 and 12. When Christ came as high priest, you go, well, time out. I thought there was already a high priest. Yeah, you know, uh, Jesus shows up and he announces to everyone, there's a new sheriff in town. High priest, you could step aside. I'm going to take that job from now on. I am the new high priest. When Jesus came as high priest, he did not enter the Holy of Holies by means of the blood of goats or calves. So you don't have to do a sacrifice on the outside and then bring that into the inside. Oh, no, no, no. He entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, by his own sacrifice, thus obtaining eternal redemption. And I added those last two words for you. What does that mean? Let me show you what that means. Let me put this next picture up here. It's one of the most famous pictures of former president JFK. And why it's so famous is he's in the Oval Office. He's running the country. He's the leader of the free world. But what makes this picture so special is what's happening underneath his desk. His son is there. His son's in the office. Do you know why? 
Because JFK isn't his president. It's his dad. When Jesus dies on the cross, the temple curtain is split in two. And it's God's way and Jesus' way of saying, you know, let's check this out. From now on, when you want to go into God's office, because you get to do that. His office, is it, because you're his son, you don't get to, it, and his office is called the throne room of heaven. You don't have to go through pastor. You don't have to go through priest. You don't have to go through the pope. You don't have to go through the rabbi. You can go right into his office. You can do that because you're his kid. That's the significance of the curtain being torn. Don't ever take for granted your privilege of being able to talk to him. It's called prayer. Because for centuries, many godly people couldn't do that. You had to make an appointment with me, and you're just not sophisticated enough to let God know what your issues is. Why don't you tell me, and I'll let him know for you. Don't have to do that anymore. You can go right into his presence. It's a huge deal. Now we have earthquake number one. Earthquake number one. Now, it's, we're going to be talking about it for four weeks. What's the point of the earthquakes? And what I want you to know is sometimes when there's an earthquake, you see it on the screen, sometimes there's no significance. There's no meaning. You go, well, that's not very interesting, but that's the truth. Every once in a while, I hear well-intentioned Christians, right? There's an earthquake in Haiti, right? And so, some Christian will go, well, yeah, God's trying to teach them they shouldn't do voodoo. <laughs> really? That's what God's going to do, Right? Or there's, there's an earthquake here in the Bay Area, right? God's trying to teach him not to follow the Niners. I don't know. What was he trying to teach him? <laughs> and Christians, it's like they read into everything. And I want you to know, listen, 99.9% of the earthquakes today, there's no meaning. God isn't trying to teach us anything. It's simply because the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans, the earth is groaning. So there's going to be these things called natural disasters. And it's very simply because sin is corrupting even the ground that we walk on. So that's it. I just want you to know that. Now, besides that, when the Bible does mention earthquakes in the Bible, he, they do that for a reason. They don't just throw stuff in there for no reason. God's trying to emphasize something. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about one story where God's supernaturally helping some guys out called Paul and Silas, and he sends an earthquake. One time we see that God's response to sin is sometimes an earthquake, sometimes called the wrath of God. We're going to look at a story where sometimes it's God showing off his power. But in this case, in the Easter earthquake, when he dies, it's simply God trying to communicate with emphasis. It's God taking a message and putting an exclamation point on it. That's what he's doing. So watch. What happens when we go through an earthquake? We live in a part of the, of the world where there's quite a few earthquakes. And some of them are kind of, quote, smaller earthquakes. But many of us have been through a big earthquake. What do we do when that happens? Think about it. Well, first thing we do is stop what we're doing, right? We stop cooking, right? We stop watching TV. We stop working. We stop what we're doing. Second of all, there's always someone in the family, always someone in the office, no matter what earthquake it is. They, oh my goodness, we're going to die. There's always someone freaking out, right? You know, we're going to be all right, Susan. We're going to be all right. Whatever, you know? Okay. And then what do you do next when it's done? You talk about it for the rest of the day. You text your friends. Are you okay? You call people up. Did what happened to the house? Don't overcomplicate it. The earthquake on this day is nothing more than God... Hey, 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 put your phone down. Put, put, no, put your phone down. Stop looking at the computer screen. Stop doing what, pay attention. That's all God's trying to do. And here's what he's trying to communicate. Easter changes everything. 
Exclamation point. It changes everything, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. One of my favorite resurrection and Easter stories is the story of a a man who goes to Jerusalem on vacation with his ever nagging wife. Unfortunately, while they're there, she dies. He meets with the undertaker and the undertaker says, well, we can bury her here in Jerusalem for $250 or we can ship the body, your wife back to the United States for $10,000. A lot of, a lot of fees to do that. And right away, the husband goes, oh, no, 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 no. We'll take her back to the United States. And the undertaker's like, why, why would you want to do that? I mean, $250 to bury her here in the holy city of Jerusalem or $10,000 to ship her back to the United States. And the husband says, to the undertaker, he says, you got to listen. He's about 2000 years ago. A man died here, was buried here, and three days later rose from the dead. I can't take that chance with my wife. (laughs) Some of you are like, I'm writing that down. That is a a good... The, The next thing that happened, speaking of people coming back from the dead, is that people come back from the dead. Verse 20, 52 and 53. Again, have you ever seen this in any Jesus film? Jesus dies, and then all of a sudden, zombies walking into Jerusalem... I have never seen it ever. I don't ever hear it in church. What is happening here? Is that Carl? I used to play racquetball with him. He died six months ago. What the heck's going on? I don't think I gave you the reference in the study guide, but right, you might want to write down 1 Corinthians 15, because in 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul gives us the doctrine behind what is happening here. He says that when Jesus is on the cross, he defeated death. He defeated death. So what is happening? We just sang it. You call my name and I will come running out of the grave. That's what's happening right here. What what is happening is that God is trying to give us a little foretaste of what's coming. He's trying to give us just a little example and illustration of what's coming. We are in the sixth inning of history. He wants us to know what's happening at the bottom of the ninth inning in history. At the end, they're going to come running out of the grave. That's what's happening. Now, I've given you on the screen the theology of death. You have to understand this because death will impact you directly or indirectly at some point in time. You will die or your friends and family member will die. So you need to understand the doctrine of death. Genesis chapter three, death is introduced to mankind. Now, you need to understand Genesis chapter one, God creates. Genesis chapter two, God creates. He steps back and he says, what I created was really good. And then in Genesis chapter three, Death is introduced. You need to understand death was never God's plan. Death is never God's idea. Death is something that God is never for. Drives me crazy when I hear Christians talk about, well, it was in God's will. Death is never God's will. It's our ultimate enemy. And it was introduced by the other guy. So if you're going to get upset when someone dies, don't get upset at God. Get upset at the guy who introduced it. It gets introduced in Genesis 3. In Matthew 27, our story, it gets defeated. Now, some of you are connecting the dots and say, time out. If Jesus defeated death on the cross, why does death still sting and hurt me so much? Because when my dad passed away or my loved one, it hurt me. What's going on? Because you don't understand. We're in the sixth inning. We're still, it's defeated. It's It's not the ninth inning. It doesn't get eliminated until Revelation chapter 21. The last two, three pages of the Bible. That's what's happening. This is the history and the doctrine of death that we have to deal with. Now, this is so important. I had it for you on the screen, but I went over it really, really quickly. In verse 52 of, the, of Matthew 27, it tells us that what you see on the screen only happens for, quote, holy people. 
only happens for holy people. Now, I want to make sure you understand in the Bible, that does not mean you have to be like Mother Teresa and Billy Graham. In the Bible, when it talks about someone being holy, this is what it means. Listen to me. It means you have a faith relationship with Jesus. So I need you to understand, you don't get that. You don't get that perk and that bonus unless you have a faith relationship with Jesus. It's so important that you understand that. The last thing that happens, well, it's the second earthquake. Matthew chapter 28, now verse 1 and 2. This is, this is Resurrection Sunday, by the way. The other one was, was Friday when he dies. This is Resurrection Sunday. Uh, now, the, the angel comes down. He rolls the stone away. It's important that you understand. The angel rose, rolls the stone uh, uh, away, not so Jesus can come out of the tomb. He does so so that the women can look inside of the tomb and the disciples. Do you understand the difference? He wants everybody to know, oh, my goodness, there's no one in there. He's gone. That's the point. Now, earthquake number one, what was the point? Easter changes everything. Earthquake number two, what's the point? Same thing. Easter changes everything, or at least it should in your life. It should. And if it hasn't, why not? I have for you on the screen two statements that are worth wrestling through. What, what, what if Jesus is actually dead? What if, what if the story of Easter was made up by religious fanatics for weak-minded people? Because there's a chunk of the world that believe that. What if they're right? Well, if that's the case, Christianity is a pipe dream. Heaven is a silly and hurtful myth because to give someone hope about a better future is not right if it's not true. Christians are pathetic fools and this book is evil. Don't you dare come at me and tell me that this is a helpful, practical book that gives moralistic teaching if the main thing it teaches was wrong or worse yet, a lie. If Jesus did not come back from the dead, this is an evil book. But what if he's alive today? If he's alive today, everything changes. Your purpose in life should change. Your priorities in life should change. Your perspective in life should change. Your problems and how you deal with it should change. Easter changes everything. So why hasn't it for you? Because that's the whole point of the earthquake. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. God is trying to rattle us and get our attention. So now what do we do with this? What do we do? Some of you, I, I know we're at the Easter egg hunt yesterday. A ton of fun and a ton of people. And this year, we always have like a petting zoo area. And they have a llama and they have ducks and they have little potbelly pigs. You know what they had this year? Puppies. I know, puppies. And everyone was hanging out with the puppies. And I had this idea. Can you imagine if on Easter Sunday, the angel had come down, rolled the stone away, and Jesus comes out with a hundred puppies? <laughs> everyone would have to be a Christian. How could you not? Jesus and puppies, right? But... He didn't do that. And the reality is that people's response to Jesus is, is quite diverse. I got about eight minutes left, but on the back side of the, your study guide, it's interesting to me. I got different people in the Easter story. 
the response to Jesus has never changed. It's the same today that it was uh, 2,000 years ago. Now, I I want you to understand something. Um, my, My job is not to guilt you. That is just not me. But my job is to challenge you. And so I'm going to go through this. And I'm just going to ask you a question. Be honest with yourself. What group are you in? And what do you got to do to get into the right group? That's what I want to challenge you. So, so let's just talk, walk, walk through this real quick. The different responses. You've got the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a group of individuals who were respectable on the outside, but not so much on the inside. Good on the outside, not so good on the inside. At one point in time, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you are like whitewashed tombs. Remember, I told you they didn't bury people in the ground. Remember, I told you they would put bodies kind of live in the sepulcher area. Well, what would happen is that every so often, just like you and I paint our house every 10 years or whatever, they would go and paint the cemetery. So they would have a guy and he would roll and he would put white paint on the tombstones. And so when Jesus says you are like whitewashed tombs, what he's saying to them is on the outside, you're white. On the outside, you're clean. On the outside, you look good to everybody. But on the inside... There's decay. Now, here's the thing. I can't see it in you. The person next to you can't see it in you. But you can know it in you. On the outside, you're doing one thing, but on the inside, you're you're doing and living a completely different life. On the inside, there's anger and there's lust and there's pride and there's selfishness. And you just kind of go about your life just doing your own thing. If that's you, you fall into this group. And it, it really doesn't matter that you're tricking me into thinking you're a good person because Jesus knows better. The, the next group is the priests. You know, the priests arrest Jesus. You know what they do with him for like three, four, five hours? You know what they do with him? Argue. They argue. Did you, you do know the priests want to please God. They want to please God. But here's their thesis. I know better than you. Jesus, I want to connect to God. And I think my ideas are better than your ideas. Jesus, you know how, you know, if you fall into this category here, here's how it works. Yeah, no, I know what you want me to do about my family and my marriage. And I know what you want me to do with my finances. And I know what you want me to do with my job and my career. And I know what you want me to do about my sex life. And I know what words you want me to use and don't want me to use. No, I, I get it. I understand it. It's not that hard to figure out, but you know what, Jesus, I think I know better than you. I, I, I think that, um, you know what? My situation is unique. And this is good for mo- most, most of them, but not for me. I'm going to go do my own thing. And you fall into this category if you understand this book, but intentionally choose to not obey it. You f- it's the same response. Then you've got Pilate. Pilate's an interesting dude. Here's a guy that he, he almost respects Jesus. He has a conversation with him. He's like, this makes sense to me. I don't think you're guilty. My wife is interested in hearing more about you. But here's his bottom line. If I stand up for you, Jesus, I don't, I don't get enough benefit. I'm not interested in helping you out because I don't get the benefit. If I stand up for you, Jesus, the Jews will revolt. I lose my job as governor. So help me out, Jesus. If you want me to stand up for you, what do I get out of the deal? You know, if you're like Pilate, if you treat God like a vending machine, you put your quarters in and you ask for certain things back from God. And if he doesn't give you those things back, well, you know, I don't think how this is benefiting me. So I'm going to, I mean, I'm not going to be aggressive at you like the priest, but I'm just not interested. 
because I don't see the benefit. The next two groups are interesting. The Palm Sunday crowd, about a thousand people meet Jesus at the entrance of Jerusalem. They're waving palm branches. You do know this is a political rally. You know that, right? The palm branches are sign are, are their sign of national independence. That's what a palm branch was. Then they start yelling one word over and over. They're brave because they're soldiers right around, Roman soldiers. They start yelling the word, say, uh, Hosanna. Hosanna. You know what that word means? We, it, we sneak it into some songs every once in a while, but do you know what the word means? It means save now. There's an implicit urgency to it. Save now. Now, save us from the Romans. Now, get rid of them right now. Set yourself up as prime minister now, now. And and here's how it works out for some of us. Uh, Jesus, here's what I need. I need you to fix my finances now. I want you to take care of my family now. I want you to find me a fiance now. I got a kid issue. Do deal with that now. I need a new job. Can you do that now? I need a new place to live. Can you do that now? And if you don't do it now, I'm going to do the same thing that the Palm Sunday crowd did. Three days later, four days later, I'm tapping out. And we, we literally get impatient with God. We treat him like our little genie. The Passover crowd, this is an interesting one. They're implicit throughout the whole story. Here's what Jews are told. Jews are told that once in your lifetime, you need to go to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. That's what they're told. So in the days of Jesus, during the Passover week, they would have an extra 30 to 60,000 people come in to celebrate Passover. Now, that crowd, they know about Jesus. They've heard him teach. They've heard he's on the cross right now. Yeah. What is their response to Jesus? You want to know what their response to Jesus is? This is their response. Well, yeah, I'll be back next year. Yeah, I, 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 got, I got hotel reservations for next. Actually, it's not a hotel. I got a little Airbnb right over by the plaza there. It's a nice little condo. It's perfect supermarket right underneath. It's perfect for everything. And that's what some of us do. Pastor, <clears throat> this Jesus story, it's good. It's a good story, right? I'll see you next year at Easter. Actually, no, I'll, I'll probably be here at Christmas. I love Christmas. And some of us are CEO Christians. CEO Christians, Christmas, Easter only. That's what we say about you behind your back. That's what we call you. Now, I'm, not, I'm not trying to guilt you. Let's just be honest. Just get it out. Come on, let's get it out. Right? I show up on special occasions. Right? And, and again, I, I'm not going to guilt you. That's on you. It's you and God. But I do want you to wrestle with a question. Here's the question. If that's you, wrestle with this question. Because here's what throws me. Here's what I, I don't understand. When I talk to those of you who just show up for special occasions, like Christmas and Easter, right? You know what? I, it's, it's fascinating to me. When I talk to you, at least you tell me to my face that you believe in Jesus. So my question for you is, is your behavior toward Jesus, does it match what you believe about Jesus? And why not? Because when I read the story... It sure seems to indicate that Easter should change everything, including what I do on Sundays. The last group is becoming a follower of Jesus. Now, I I gave it for you in your study guide. I think it's interesting. What I'm challenging and hoping, obviously, that you do is that you 
believe and trust and do whatever God wants you to do. There's three groups of followers in the Matthew story, the centurion, the women and the disciples. And why I put it in your study guide, they're all jacked up. They all have issues, right? The centurion was God's or Jesus personal executioner. The women are afraid. That's why they're standing a distance away. And the disciples are are rattled with questions. That's what catches my attention. And so all the reasons some of us don't go all in with Jesus, it's the same reasons. It's the same reasons. I hear some people, you know, some of us are coming to Jesus. We got issues. Some of our past is horrendous. But is anyone as bad as being the personal executioner of Jesus? It's you're. It doesn't, you don't measure up to that. I don't care what your past is. You could still come to Jesus. The women, they are watching from a distance. You know why? They're nervous. They don't want to be associated with Jesus just in case they'll get in trouble. Now, a little credit to the women. You don't even see any of the guys, any of the disciples. So a little credit deserves to be given to them. But you know, I meet people that are also nervous about Jesus. You know, I've been making fun of Jesus my whole life. Well, if I become a follower of Jesus, what is my mom and dad going to say? What's my family going to say? What's my coworkers going to say? What's my classmates at high school going to say? And some of us, we got this nervous butterfly. I don't, I don't want to be teased. I don't, I, I don't know what I'm getting into. How about the disciples? One of my favorite verses, it's right at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 28, verse 17. When the disciples saw Jesus, they worshiped him. Yay, high five, Jesus, you the man. And then it adds, but some of them had doubts and questions. And so do you. I'm interested in this Jesus thing, but you know what? I got questions about Noah and I got questions about the flood and and I got questions about creation evolution and I got questions about issues in the Bible. I got all these questions and doubts. And here's my point. If you're like the centurion, no matter what your past is, if you're like the women at, at the cross site and you're nervous about coming to Jesus, if you're like the disciples and you still have questions and doubts, still the best response today to Jesus is to come to him. To follow him, no matter what your baggage is. I'm going to have Louise come up at this time. I'm going to tell you one story. I'm going to wrap up. It's a story about a dad who takes his son to the carnival on his birthday. And this isn't like one of these amusement parks when everybody can go on all the rides and no matter. No, you know, you have to get tickets for each ride. And so the the dad tells the son, he says, uh, you can invite six friends. So they're, they're at the carnival Right. And they just before they're going to go on the ride, dad gives the the son a ticket and then he gives out six tickets to his friends. And then after that ride, they come running to him and he gives his son a ticket and he gives out six more tickets. And this is going on for a couple hours. Well, at one point in time, they get off the Ferris wheel and, and and they want to go on the bumper cars. And so they line up in front of dad and he gives the son a ticket and he gives six more tickets out. But then when he gets to the end, there's another kid there. There's an eighth boy. And the dad's never seen this kid before. And he goes, who are you? He goes, I'm Johnny. And he goes, what are you doing? And Johnny says, I'm your son's new best friend. Your son told me you'd give me a ticket. I wonder how many of you are willing to stand in line to God the Father. And let God the Father, creator of the universe, know Jesus is my new best friend. And he told me you'd give me a ticket. Because I'm here to tell you, you you don't get to ride the bumper cars without a ticket. You need that faith relationship with Jesus. Make sure you're in the right crowd. 
I didn't say make sure you're a Christian. Because you can be a Christian and still be in the wrong crowd. Make sure you're a follower of Jesus. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to obey you. No matter what. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Easter story. Goodness, we've been in church, some of us, for so many years. I'm glad that you continue to bring back the wonder of what the story is and what it represents. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I want you to take a moment. What crowd are you in? And what are you going to do to take your next step closer to Jesus? Take a moment and reflect on that. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if you're here and just like that centurion, you have never taken a step and actually said yes to Jesus. You've never lined up and asked for a ticket. I wonder if today you want to let God know that Jesus is your new friend. If that expresses the desire of your heart, I want you to pray this prayer silently in your heart to God. Dear God, today, as best as I know how I get it, I, like the centurion, believe that Jesus was the Son of God and that he died for my sins. I understand the privilege that I have now based upon the symbol of the curtain being broken in two that I get to come into your presence in my prayer right now. It matters. You're hearing me right now. And today, as best as I know how, I say yes to Jesus. I still, I'm still nervous about a couple things. I got baggage that I'm showing up with. I still have some questions and doubts about certain things, but what I know, I get. And I say yes to Jesus today. Give me my ticket. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, Scripture tells us that it's important not only to make that decision private, but to also make a public declaration. So I'm going to ask you, as heads are bowed and eyes are closed, at least make the public declaration and raise your hand up right now so I can see it. You prayed that prayer to accept Christ. Put it up, five seconds. Hold it up so I can see it. Hold it up. Hold it up. I see those hands everywhere. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these folks. Thank you that they get to ride the bumper cars. Thank you that they got their ticket for heaven and for eternity. Father, many of us, we asked for that ticket years ago. But today you reminded us that it's important to be in the right group. And some of us, while we believe in your son Jesus, the way we've lived our life hasn't always honored what he did for us on that cross. Father, help every single one of us take our next step closer to you. We love you. We pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said.